Hello and welcome to the Meet the Masters podcast presented by Scale Up Milwaukee. Meet the Masters is an interview series that highlights entrepreneurs, business owners, and CEOs and their successful expansions and stories of growth. This series is presented by Scale Up Milwaukee, an initiative of the Greater Milwaukee Committee whose focus is on transforming the culture of growth in the region. Scale Up does this by hosting impactful events and business accelerators designed to infuse growth into every corner and help spread inclusive economic prosperity. You can find out more about Scale Up at scaleupmilwaukee.org. This episode features an interview with Russ Klisch, founder of Lakefront Brewery, as he shares the challenges and successes of growing Lakefront Brewery into one of Milwaukee's most well-known brands. This interview originally took place on June 5th, 2017. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for uh, attending a Scale Up Milwaukee Meet the Masters series event. Um, I'm so excited about today. This is going to be a fun conversation, if only because the topic is quite a bit more accessible than, than the product of some of the other companies we've talked to. I am excited to present a conversation with Russ Klisch, the president and CEO of Lakefront Brewery. Good morning, Russ. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're so excited to have you. So while I think everyone knows about Lakefront and about you, why don't you give us the, the one-minute version of what is Lakefront Brewery? Uh, Lakefront Brewery is an innovative um, company in Milwaukee uh, that makes beer. We try to do things fun. We try to have entertainment. We try to be part of the city. We try to have showing what's inside the bottle. You know, our, our company, the way we work, and our culture around there is also what's on the inside of the bottle we try to have. So we have both where the bottle try to represent our culture and fun. So one of the surprises about studying you is there's a word that's used consistently that we don't often associate with, with breweries and with beer making. And that's innovation. Yeah. I'm really interested in uh, how innovation became part of your, your DNA. And I mean that for you personally. What happened in your childhood that, that encouraged you to be an innovator? Uh, that's a good question. It goes back to me probably doing the uh, picture puzzles or something every Christmas when I got the uh, the thing, I always hear these statistics that, like, you know, anybody who's ever given an erector set, like, you know, becomes a structural engineer or something. I, I don't know. It was just to me that you always try to invent or you try to bring up something that, uh, you know, is not out there where you feel you're, you're not, you're, I always feel it's best to be an innovator, not an imitator. So this weird thing happens. You go to college, uh, you go to UW, Eau Claire, and you're, you're clearly a smart guy, you're an engineer, and you and your brother have this wild idea, which is, it's fair to call it crazy, right? Um, yeah, you would, you would think so. I mean, we, we were trying to do things on a small scale back then, so I didn't think we were risking too much, as maybe as compared to some of the startups right now. Mm -hmm. But uh, we couldn't find any, you know, anybody to invest in it, so it was all with our own money that we grew. Tell so, me about the moment that you said, wow, we can actually do this. Um, it was probably early on when we were doing home brewing. And, and uh, you know, we started making beer. And we started winning awards. 
-hmm. And you know, you won, made beer, you won awards, you made more beer, you won awards. You know, your friends start telling us you, know, you should open up a brewery. And when you're 20-something years old, you think it's good advice. But um, <laughs> you know, and, and so, but you know, you do it. And you, from my engineering background, it's like, well, you just kind of sit there and you feel how you can get some pieces in, in, um, in line. Like we've been innovative with a lot of our products, but we're also very, I felt, innovative on how we built the place and how, from a financial standpoint, how we were able to, you know, build a brewery inexpensively. And tell me about that. Well. I know one day a food writer walked into our place and said, you know what you got here? You got here is a Frankenstein operation because every piece of equipment had lived and died a previous life, and it was true. Um, I mean, we had you know, every bulk dairy milk tank that you could find, any dairy that went out of business, you went to the auction, you went to restaurant auctions, you, know, you bought it from there, you just brought it on back, and, and, you, you know, and then you start thinking, once you see this piece of equipment, what could it be used for? And you're basically, I remember back in the day, you'd buy uh, it would be like a dollar a gallon for a tank. And so if you have a 3,000 gallon tank, it'd be like $3,000, where today this tank would cost like 40,000, 50,000. Wow. And, and so, so back, you know, when we first started out, you just, we did everything on, on the, the cheaper, you know, down low. And, but that's how you had to do it. You didn't have much choice. Um, but you're able to make it work. And that was the, the thing, that I think, the difference between us and maybe others where, you actually put the time and the thought and everything else into it and how, how you can engineer it and, and still make good beer. But what I'm missing is there's a, there's a point at which you all are making beer at home. And there had been a little bit of a culture of home brewing where you, you transition from being a, a large, what we'll call a large-scale home brewer yeah. to buying equipment and becoming a manufacturer. What gave you the audacity to, to do such a thing? Well, it was just... Um, I, I heard somebody say when I was younger that if you ever get together with you know, a couple young people when early in your, your career and, and you have a good idea and you work at it, you, know, you can make a go. You can make a you know, livelihood out of it. Mm -hmm. And you know, essentially that's what happened. Essentially you know, the, the two people were my brother and myself that, that were always, always there. We had some other people, uh, some employees, you know, they come and go, but you know, we always had you know, us two and that, was, that always kind of formed the bedrock of the, of the company. And you know you just kind of progress from from there. But then when you you know you, you just have faith in yourself and you have and you never put yourself to a point where it would be you know financially uh, financial trouble. Mm -hmm. You always pushed yourself to a limit to, to how much you could almost spend. But then you never really kind of went over over certain boundaries. And I guess that's that's the one thing that I I also feel I kind of did did well was where I wasn't able to. Um, I never got myself into huge, even though I did, you know, take out a lot of loans and a lot of credit card loans and things on that sort. It, it uh, I, I never felt I was to the point where I'd ever have to go bankrupt. Mm -hmm. So don't bet the farm. Yeah, I didn't. I bet close most of the farm, but I didn't bet the entire farm. <laughs> so, because these are always fun stories, tell me about a time when you, you know you're, you lost the faith. You're you're doubting. You, you're sort of. At, the, at a crossroads, you have to make a big make or break decision. How did you go about choosing which path? Well, there, there was a couple times. One, um, I went and I bought a current building down in Commerce Street. If anybody's seen it, it's a big cream city brick building. And um, you know, the bank gave us some money to, to go in there. And we went and we spent it. And, you know, and, and everybody, we're selling everything we can make. And, 
uh, the bank doesn't give me any more money. We're not making any, any profit. Essentially, I'm taking everything, I'm putting it back in the brewery. And, and it came to the point like, well, how am I ever going to get money? And then it, back in the early you know, 2000s, you get mailed almost every day, you know, sign up for this credit card. You know, you got $10,000. And so I, I made the decision back then that I would um, start, you know, taking out lines of credit on credit cards. And, and, you know, I got over 200000 buying, but I bought all equipment with it. And, but, you know, there's other things Wait, I have I, to... I want to make sure I understood this correctly. You spent nearly $200,000 on credit cards. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, all right. But, um, but, you know, the one thing I remember, you know, I talk about betting the farm. I, the building I had was, I almost got for free from the city. Mm -hmm. And it was assessed at 800000 And I had loans for, like... Two three hundred thousand, and so to take another two hundred thousand, I felt if I ever had to sell the thing, I'd, I'd still be in the black. And so I never really felt I was going that much. But even though it was a very unorthodox thing to do, so I, I want to remind you all that uh, this is meant to be a conversation. So if and when you have questions or uh, concerns about spending two hundred thousand dollars on a credit card, uh, please please speak up. Well, I do have one. Thanks. Uh, so, so that was in the early 2000s. When was the when was the out of the garage going into business brewing beer? When did that happen? Uh, 1987, December 2nd. Okay, so yeah, we. Um, yeah, maybe, I don't know if I should tell. Me just yes, history, please. So, founded in '87. Yeah. So we were home brewing. Uh, we found an old bakery building down the street from us, uh, and we decided to build as a 55-gallon stainless steel drum brewery. I went out and bought a, it was basically a used tank yard. We found a bunch of 55-gallon uh, stainless steel drums. We found some guys who could weld fittings on them and, and everything. And I got some old, actually, tanks from the old Schlitz Brewery. And so we, you know, we built a, a system that would basically make three half barrels of beer. So we just brewed on weekends. I was working at John's Controls as an engineer at the time, making automotive batteries. And, um, and so we just started from then. We just worked weekends, delivered beer during the week. My brother was a Milwaukee police officer. Uh, 88, we hired our first employee, and then we just brought it in. We just, then we kept on going on this search for equipment, how to bring something in, and you found bulk dairy milk tanks that were refrigerated, and you can brew beer into them, and then we, took our, we found some other used equipment, and we just kept on growing. And then in 1999, uh, we moved into our current location. On Commerce Street. On Commerce Street, at City of Milwaukee. Yeah. So we were, we were the first building on Commerce Street. That was functional. A couple other important milestones. 1992, uh, they started manufacturing and distributing a, a fruit beer, which I didn't even know was a thing. Uh, it was the first fruit beer of its kind since Prohibition. Uh, and I'm, I'm excited to hear about why you decided to beer, excuse me, to, to brew that. 1996, uh, first certified organic beer. Uh, then again, 98, 99, moved to Commerce Street. And 2004, a very big moment for the company, started brewing the gluten-free beer, which was the first of its kind in the nation. Um, there's lots of story and mythology around them having to bend you know, federal regulations in order to make this a real thing. Um, but you'll, you'll get a sense, all these firsts, even as he was the first on, on Commerce Street, that innovation, uh, and, and pioneering are really in the DNA of the company. I'm, I'm really interested in this idea because 
you know, you're talking to Scale at Milwaukee about why you continue to grow and what has been your, you know, what has been the, your motivating principle to pursue growth. You didn't have to go to Commerce Street and open the, the restaurant and, the, and you didn't have to do the tours. Why keep growing? Well, keep growing. Um, to me, I, I just find it, you know, an opportunity, you know, opportunity to uh, uh, continue placing your company in, in financial straits that are, that are sound. Anytime that you can find something and, and make it grow, and it's great for your employees, it's great for you. It's easier on your employees. The more you grow, the, the safer equipment and places and other things you can put in there, the more professional equipment you can, um, you, you know, you can get, and you can pay people more professionally, and you don't have as much PR or uh, HR problems. And so to me, it's, it's always great to get innovation and, and you stay relevant. Um, I think what Benjamin Franklin said something, when you, when, you, when you stop innovating, you stop, or something like that, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. But it basically means that when, once you stop trying to grow, stop trying to innovate, your company is basically doomed. So I love that, uh, and you, you briefly mentioned it, you've got a, real, uh, a really strong take on cultivating culture and how to best utilize people. And one of the conversations that we've had consistently is how talent plays such an important role in the growth of a company. Mm -hmm. um, tell me how you go about making sure that the people you bring into Lakefront are the right people. Um, in the past, we would basically would just meet them and you know, go through a small interview. Uh, now we do have an HR department. That was one thing we've kind of grown into. I shouldn't say it's a full time. I rent an HR lady who comes in once a week on Thursdays, and she'll she'll there for half a day. And and she uh, now we have a handbook. We didn't have that before, mm -hmm. but before it was just like to get the feel of the individual. And not everybody works out. I remember there was a time it seemed like 50% of the people I'd hire was like the ones that you could tell that really really were decent, and then and then you just had to make sure you, you let them go, or, or send them on a different path. Mm -hmm. Um, if, if they didn't, but I, I guess it just becomes known to you at a, you know, within a short period of time if this person's going to work out or not work out, and, and you try to do, you know, try to prevent as much of that as possible. But um, did you have a sense of uh, a, a certain flavor or spark that would that would compel you to bring someone into your team? Uh, I, I guess you know just whether you think they're they're going to fit well, whether they're going to um, uh, be a team player. Uh, you, you can try to tell and see if a person's you know on his arrogant side or more conservative, or, you know, or just you know not you know more more lively. I mean, just like with our tours, if you go to our tours, everything's fun, and so you try to have more people that are coming, and, and try to have more fun you know in individuals uh, there, and it just seems to have worked. <laughs> Work for it. So I, I found a quote, and I really liked it. Uh, we're the vision. When you make a company, you'd like to do everything, but you can't. And, and I love that coming from an engineer. And so you have to pass off certain things. We've been blessed to find people who have a similar palate or can make the recipes. Uh, that's one hallmark of being an owner, being able to pass off the job to someone new. So, so what I hear from you is that you have a capacity mm -hmm. for sort of attracting and, and uh, deploying talent well. But you might not even you, you might not even be thinking about it that uh, definitively. Yeah, well, you've been just doing it all your life, so maybe you know we've done well, obviously, you know, throughout the years, and, and 
how, you know, we, we never, we always just kind of, it's a given to us that, of course, this is what you do. So what's in this handbook? The handbook is just basically all the rules. I mean, it used to be we didn't have any rules. And for a long time, I thought it wasn't good to have rules. Yeah. Because then, it, you know, all of a sudden, that kind of wrecks everything, and you just kind of do it. But then it got to a point where you want to make it fair for everybody, or this person saying, well, this guy got this, but I'm not getting it, and why can't I have it? And so then you end up. And, and so, I mean, the rules are like how much vacation days you get, you know, when, who, when everybody's off, when do you get overtime, Does uh, it you know, health care benefits. What oh. people wear? No, I don't. Well, I no. I, I that that's when I just verbal do. I you know I tell people they you know if they're working in the beer hall they have to have something said lakefront on so in case a customer comes in they know that uh, it's there. You want to have you know usually I want to them to wear a collar. That makes it a little more professional. I, uh, it's for the managers. Some of the the bartenders or tour guides don't have to do that. But um, so you've made this culture. You've made a culture both inside of your organization, but you've also, you know, in a lot of ways, you're kind of the brewery of, of Milwaukee. You know, you're iconic. Was that on purpose or? or no. Um, you mean, for what we do here, I just kind of, you know, like when we started the restaurant and, and the beer hall and the building, you know, I mean, a lot of people said, oh, you should have a, a German you know, theme to it, because you know, we had German equipment, we had German beer, and make a German beer, you know, our, our beer hall basically is like German, but if you go there, what, you know, we're not a, a German place, we're a Milwaukee place. You know, you come mm. there, you got the Cream City Brick Building, you know, breweries are part of Milwaukee. You know, we don't dress anybody in, you know, some sort of, you know, festive clothes from another country. You know, everybody, everybody drives, you know, it's a Milwaukee place. Uh, you know, the food that we have here is mostly Milwaukee type food, the brats, the beer, the cheese, and, you know, all that sort of thing. So, you know, the fish fry, the polka band, those are all things, you know, most people here in town have, have grown up with. So if anybody comes in from out of town, you know, and they want to, you know, where, where do we go to see something that's local, has local flavor? You know, that's, that's what we do. And so we kind of, I keep on thinking about that. I never really thought about it at first because I just did what I thought was good. But then all of a sudden I realized this is what we're building. We're building a, a Milwaukee place. So I have to tell you that I moved here a couple of years ago. And uh, maybe a few months into my time in Milwaukee, I went to Fish Fry. And okay. there's this polka band playing, and there are families and fathers dancing with their babies. Yeah. And uh, I moved here from New York City. And what fascinated me was that the excitement and the energy, it wasn't, it wasn't anyone being ironic. People knew the words to the songs that the polka <laughs> band were singing in German. Uh -huh. uh, this, you know, people had regular seats. People, there's communal seating. I sat down, my wife and I sat down, and, and a lovely couple that we were with had really strong opinions about which fish we should order, and they directed us. <laughs> you know, I uh -huh. mean, so, so I, again, what I feel is that there is a, uh, such a strong uh, identity, such a so strong self-awareness, a culture that you have created in this in this place, and uh, it just pervades everything you do: the innovation, the experience out of fish fry, the fun of the tours, and it seems so easy for you. Yeah, well, you know, it is. I, I well, I always uh, kind of joke about this, but it, you know, it's true. Like with the tours, and when I first started doing a tour, I, I gave a tour like I was a science teacher. I didn't know anything, you know, I thought that's why the reason people wanted to come on down was to learn how to make beer. 
and my brother really didn't know anything technical about beer, so he just told jokes and gave out beer first. <laughs> you know, everybody took his tour, nobody took mine. And, <laughs> and so that kind of, you know, went from there. You know, and, 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 and so then you learn, you know, people are here to be entertained. People want to have fun. You know, that's the reason why they come to you. You know, they want to they have fun, they want to drink beer. And those are the, the, the two main things. And so that's what you kind of focus on getting good entertainment so that after that then you start learning well you know you should really have is you know people from you know comedy sports or you know comics that run around or theater people doing the tours and they all come up with their own act and they all you know I never read, wrote a script for any of them I mean I think I'm probably one of the few brewery owners in the country who've, who've never done that so everybody has their own act so you can go there I think 10 times and see 10 different acts and people tell me that and, and that's great because if Compared to other places where you go there and you got something on a screen, you watch and you sit down, and after you've seen it once, you don't, you know, you don't need to go back. But you know that culture from over there, the restaurant, you know, going, you know, that that is then spread to, you know, the waitresses, to the kitchen staff, to have fun, to, um, you know, even our brewers. How many brewers do you have now? Uh, we have like what I would consider. Uh, we have four people that can run the brew kettle on a. Um, uh, consistent basis, I got like two others who can jump in at any time who are like their supervisors if people get sick or anything on that sort. And, and so and then they have cellar people and you got the people running the bowling line. And when did you stop being the brewer? I don't think I brewed a batch of beer since like 92. Really? Yeah, some, some back, uh, back there. And I know, I think I brewed the first batch and a new kettle that we brought in in, in, 90, or in 2000 or 99 just to make sure it worked well. But, um, but that was the last time I, I did I did some other formulations of beer. So uh, let's talk about this, this fruit beer. The I, have, I have a question. Yes, Joe. Before we get to your question. So, so let's take a step back, because you, you started off talking about we're, we're an innovative company that makes beer. And you just told a story about, you know, so you own the company with your brother. You do the tour this way. He does it that way. They couldn't be more different. Right? Yeah. And you look at him and say, your idea is bad. Yeah. And now you just said, I haven't brewed a beer since 1990, brewed a batch of beer since 1992, except for the test batch. So part of your growth story is you as the owner saying, I don't have all the good ideas, right? I mean, yeah. there's, there's a through line there. Well, it is. You, know, you have to hire people and bring people in that are smarter than you. And, and, um, and so you just can't sit there and be you know, arrogant about it saying, well, it's my way. I mean, there's certain things you have to do, like quality and things of that sort, where you, you put your foot down and say, this is the way it's got to be, and you don't take anything else. But, but, you know, you look for innovation. You look for any, any other idea, and once you get it, you go with it. But how do you know the difference between a new idea and a good new idea? I mean, you know, not all good ideas work. You know, you just have to sit there, and I, I guess you just got a batting average. You, you look at it, and you size it up, and you, you're the judge and jury, and, and you sit back, and... And you think, well, this is going to work or it's not. You I mean you have a lot of people coming up, and some of my ideas all didn't work either for my innovations. But um, you want to tell us about any? You know, I, you know, you talked about like the fruit beer, and before that was pumpkin beer. That's the first thing we did. We we uh, we had a, uh, yeah. <laughs> and so you had pumpkin beer. That was a big hit. They did the fruit beer. That was a big hit. And then I read about smoke beer. It's, and, they, and actually, if you ever go to Bamberg, Germany. It's fabulous. I've been there. It really, really tastes good. And, 
And there was an old Ukrainian butcher down the street from us in River West. And I thought, you know, I, he used to smoke his meats. And I went up to him and I said, can you smoke some malt for me? And I told him about this. And mm. he goes, yeah, I'd love to. So I give him a bag of malt, a old 50-pound bag, and he smokes it. And he gives it back to me, and I brew the batch of beer with it. And the beer ends up tasting like sausage. <laughs> I didn't realize he smoked it with his sausage. Is that good or bad? Yeah. No, it was bad. I don't know. He seems like you have all the food groups in Wisconsin in one drink, but it's um. <laughs> but, but no, it was. People did. People didn't understand that one, sausage beer. But um, so that one didn't work go anywhere. So that was like one innovation you try coming out with. That sounds a little, little regretful. Like they should love it. They should. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be good, but. <laughs> Please, that's Julia. So who came up with the concept, or how did you develop this whole Black Friday beer, which is like kind of a cult thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, there's a couple things that happened. One, we had our, uh, our lady that runs our tours, uh, Chris, you know, George. Um, and she's told me, she said, what you got to do is you got to have a, uh, a tour on Black Friday, 8 o'clock. You know, all the people are out shopping, they're all done shopping, they want to take a tour, and they'll have come here and they'll go home and go to sleep. And so I think, okay, we'll do it. So I put an ad in the Shepherd Express, and we, you know, eight o'clock on Friday morning, I give the first tour. So I go down there, and, you know, I get about 30 people on the tour at eight o'clock in the morning. And so I asked, you know, how many people here are, have, have gone shopping? It's like, zero. <laughs> I don't know if they wanted to get away from their relatives or whatever, and, and, but they just wanted to get out of the house. So it's like, you know, 8 o'clock in the morning, Friday, 30 people show up for a tour. And so I'm thinking, well, people want to get out. And my, and my marketing guy was bugging me. A lot of these breweries were doing is these, you know, uh, there was one place like in uh, Indiana, uh, Dark Lord Days, they were having a special big, over-the-top, flavorful beer, and they're selling it for like, you know, $10, $15 a bottle. And... And so I'm thinking, you know, because I, 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 he told me they should do it, but the only days we had available were like Saturdays that we could do this since we were working these other days. And um, I, I, we didn't really have a good day for it. And then all of a sudden I'm thinking, well, Black Friday, you could do this beer. And then I Googled Black Friday beer, and the, uh, the name was not taken, so we trademarked it. And so now we got the trademark on Black Friday beer. Uh, and so we, then we, the next year we came and we, you know, we didn't know how it was going to go. We made a bunch of bottles and a bunch of people showed up. And we've done it now like five years in a row where we just get these huge lines of, of people. And you know, we get national attention. And there's certain things I didn't realize either was that um, we're one of the few things on Black Friday that, that is during the day that mm. people have huge lines for. Because so people, the media would come out like crazy because they could take pictures, especially the morning TV shows. By that time, almost every other store had their sales. There was nothing else to, to show, and everybody thought it was great. So we got great media from it. I mean, pictures of that, you know, went all over the United States. We've had in papers. Love it. George? Um, I don't know if everyone's familiar, but I'm really, I love your My Turn series of beers. Mm. And I was wondering where that might come from. Well, I'll, I'll take credit for that one. Um, well, and, I, well, would you mind explaining the My Turn Okay, yeah. Program? What, uh, well, Maybe I'll take a step back first. What, what a lot of breweries were doing is what they call one-off series. Uh, you have your seasonal series where you have it out for like three months or something, and then you have the one-off series where all of a sudden it hits the shelf and it's like, you don't buy it now, you're not going to be able to buy this thing. And so then it generates a lot of buzz. Usually they're, they're bigger beers, more special stuff. Uh, 
And I, I, I was watching some of the breweries that were doing this, and they all had, to me, like the same personality behind their beer, and you could tell the same person was designing it. And you know, it, uh, when you, you know, run the brewery, everybody comes up to you all the time and says, you know, we should brew this style of beer. This is you know, my favorite beer, and we should really brew this one. And so I'm thinking, how do we get some personality in this beer and maybe do a one-off series? And so then I started letting all my employees brew a style of beer from seniority. So the oldest employee there brewed it first. And so we started, now we're on number 22. We come out with every three months, we come out with one of these styles of beer. So we brew one batch. Um, and so you know, it, it's out there and, and people love it because it's a real person. They have like their opening and, and a lot of people know, know them. And uh, they, they have their, they, the, there's one night they all go to their favorite bar and all, everybody from the brewery shows up, their parents come. All their friends, it's like a wedding almost for them. They have their wine, they're receiving, and they talk about it, and everybody takes pictures with them. And it's fun. You know, everybody's like counting their days at the brewery about when they get to have their turn on this beer. You know, we got, in fact, it's kind of interesting. The one that's out right now is a smoked beer. <laughs> and so well. It was done well. It didn't taste like sausage. But um, the next one's Dylan, Dortmunder. The, the next one is? Uh, a Dylan, who brewed a, a Dortmunder. It's a German style, lighter uh, style. It would be, it'd be good for, um, for summer. So you've also done the all Wisconsin beer. Yes. How'd that come about? Um, that came about from, uh, you know, I, I just wanted to try to grow hops and grow barley uh, in the state. Uh, Winemakers use a word tar called terroir, where it, affects the flavor of the grape. You can take the same grape vine and, and plant it in North Carolina, New York State, California, and make wine from it, and all three wines would be completely different. And they talk about, you know, the terroir, how much, you know, moisture's in there, how much clay's in the soil, how much sun it gets, and the temperature and all, and it affects the taste and flavor. And I thought it was the same way with, you know, with maybe with hops or, or barley. And, you know, also at one time, Wisconsin was was a great hop-growing state. It was the largest hop-growing state in the country back around uh, 1900. And you know, then of course they, they grew barley here. That's one of the reasons you know, Wisconsin was such a great brewing center. All the raw ingredients, ice, everything was here. And, and so I thought, well, we should try to bring this back. It'd be fun. And, and so we got some local uh, farmers to grow hops. Uh, and uh, well, then we got the uh, you know, the barley, and the one thing I've also noticed is that certain Belgian breweries would have their own style of yeast. It would be airborne. They wouldn't even put any yeast in there. It would just open up like the louvers on the side of their building, and yeast would, natural yeast would come on in and ferment the beer. And, when, and I, I talked to a guy from Northern Brewer uh, who had a PhD in microbiology from Purdue. He was running a homebrew supply store. And so I asked him, well, could you ever like find a local strain of yeast? He said, sure, and, and, uh, and I, I forgot about it. Like two months later, he shows up at my doorstep and gets some of my Wisconsin malt that's never left the state, been malted in the state. He took it back to his place, crushed it up, put in a glass of water, nothing else, and it started to grow. And then he was able to single cell the yeast from the bacteria uh, in there. And, a couple, and then he did some test batches on a couple of these yeasts. Some didn't work out well, but he found one that did work well and ended up being uh, Similar to a German Weiss style beer, had a nice clove flavor. And that ended up being Wisconsinite. 
which has been our largest selling summer seasonal ever. And, and so I, one of the things I most enjoy about listening to Russ is you just sort of hear the engineer talking, <laughs> uh, very process driven approach. So please. It was, it was, I would say both. I mean, like, you know, we're the first organic brewery, too. And, and so that was important to me, the fact that, you know, from being kind of environmentalist that you, you know, you, you sit there and you try to promote organic farming. Uh, you know, with the gluten-free one, um, I never heard of this. I got a phone call from a, a doctor, of all places, Houston, and, and he asked me if I could do this beer for him because uh, he thought if I could do an organic beer, I could do a gluten-free beer. And he told me one out of every 500 people in this, this country or something called a celiac. I never heard that term before. And, and I'm thinking, well, that's a lot of beer drinkers. Uh, <laughs> one out of every five. You can get that market. You're pretty good. And there's nobody else doing this. And um, and asked my uh, head brewer uh, about this. And, and he said uh, his dad was a celiac. And he, he never really drank a beer with him. And he said, this would be fabulous if I could you know, make this. I thought, I thought for sure he thought he'd be crazy. It's like, you know, why am I going to want to try to make a, a beer out of sorghum and rice? And, uh, and so, you know, when, so there I, all of a sudden I found that you know, there's, there's people out there that have a need. So and it was also a financial thing. If I could get this going, I could make some beer. And it was been a financially, financial standpoint, it was huge, huge success for us. But you know, so as, to me, that was kind of a combination of you know both of them. You don't you don't go into something with, without the idea of being a, having a profit off of it. But you also have to you know, you, to me, there's plenty of opportunity out there to to follow both, be profitable and, and follow your own instincts. That's that's good for people. Please. Yes. Well, I would assume that some people now and then come over to our place. Um, there's also the impact that when we first went down there, it wasn't the best neighborhood. Uh, and, and so that, um, uh, the fact I have all the other people, there's more eyes on the street, has helped, uh, you know, tremendously uh, for people coming on down for both the tours and the fish fry and everything on that sort, where at one peep time people were kind of scared to come on down. But, you know, so I think, you know, we've helped both, you know, each another on, on that respect. But, no, it's, it's been, and also, and also that positive factor, I mean, if, if I had to say, like, one thing that really propelled our growth was the fact I got that building for almost next to nothing. The city was going to tear it down if I didn't get it. And so either they had to spend a ton of money tearing it down or I was going to, you know, give it, get, basically give it to me. And, and so once I, I got that, all of a sudden I had something that was valuable and I could borrow against it. And then I was able to borrow against it, basically, and then um, take that you know, money and, e and equipment, and then I was able to grow the brewery, which then made me more money, which I was able to put back in. So if, if I didn't get that building and have that you know, kind of um, momentous uh, opportunity to, to borrow against, I don't think we'd, I'd be where I am today. So with a... Please. Yes.
Yeah, it, it is kind of a tricky balance between, um, you know, growing too fast, you know, or, or maintaining it, or, or not going growing quick enough. Uh, there's, you know, I have my own formulation in my head about how frequently you must come out with new products. Uh, you know, there, there's been other breweries to me. I remember back in the '90s saying you just got to concentrate on five. Don't bring out anything new. And those guys have all kind of went by the wayside. Uh, you have to come out. You know, like right now, we're coming out with a beer almost once a month. It's something either new or, or seasonal. And, um, and that's what everybody wants. You, talk, you walk in any store, anybody walks into a beer, beer bar, it's like, what's new? What haven't I had? What, you know, and, and so everybody wants to do that. And so then you have your name on something new, and it makes it relevant. Um, and you know, it, it's not only that, it's like how fast you can grow. Uh, I know I've had employees you know, criticize me often that I don't stink enough money into the building or try to go. I, a couple times I, I was trying to go down the valley one time to, to brew a bill, um, make a building, but the price tag got over 20 million bucks and I, I knew I couldn't afford it. And I thought I was gonna get some money coming in from the government, but all of a sudden I found out that wasn't gonna happen. And then I'm buying a lot next to me. I still own that, but I'm, uh, as several bankers have told me, I'm a conservative brewer, and, and um, you know, and actually going and, and putting my money into it. You just have this feeling of, to me, the the, the building kind of or the brewery tells you when it really needs something. You don't let other people tell you. It kind of talks to you in a way. It's kind of weird, but I'm trying to say that, but it, it does. You know, you really kind of all of a sudden you see certain signs that say, I really need to expand. I really need to have this, and I, I wait for that to occur before I, uh, you know, really put the big money down on anything. So we're in a room with a number of business owners and you're having a conversation with Scale Up Milwaukee and uh, we care deeply about growth. So if given an opportunity, and you have that opportunity right now, to uh, communicate something that would be instructive uh, or inspiring about growth, what would you say? Um, I, I would just say that, you know, what, what the difference between me or, or anybody and, and their contemporaries in their industry is off of, you know, either innovation or opportunities that they get, that come to you. Um, you know, in, uh, I think I, I talked about this the other day on but opportunities, you know, you have things like, you know, like for us was like, you know, everything like from Bernie Brewer Chalet, to, you know, the Black Friday to uh, things that you get. All of a sudden, if you look going our place, we got lights in our place from, uh, uh, you know, the over 100 years ago. They were from the Plankington Hotel, the Arts and Crafts Lights. They're, they're literally our museum pieces. And, you know, I, I read an article in the paper from Whitney Gould saying uh, that city was auctioning these things off. They didn't want them. And so we, we end up going down and buying. And so you know, I think about myself, I think about anybody else in the town could have gone down there and, and do this. But then you th sat there and thought, well, you know, these are museum pieces. This is something that really fits your place well. And, and so you go and you do it, you have the opportunity. And so there, there's certain opportunities that come to you and then there's certain innovations that, you know, once, you know, they, they come to you like they never stop calling you, that you, you see and you, you feel that, you know, it's in your mind. It's like the gluten-free beer where it's like, you know, it's 500 people, you know, you got this. And I, I got some other things I'm gonna be doing this next year where I really 
but it was, uh, so my innovations have not stopped. I, I still have fun stuff coming up. Is there anything you want to tell us about? No. <laughs> and, and, and I don't know if it's going to work yet, so I don't want to sit there and say anything. Yeah, I mean, it's like, yeah. 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 Okay. Yes. Um, one thing I, I've done since I've been kind of successful, I thought maybe I'll try to give something back to the community. And uh, I was somebody mentioned to me, uh, Peter, the concierge at the at the Fister, started talking to me about bells and about how Milwaukee has lots of bells, and and, and but nobody rings them. And that's one big difference between our city and other cities. You know, you look at what, you know, everybody has a city and, you know, here we embrace our cream city brick buildings and other, you know, older, we're one older town in, in the nation. So when people come here, they enjoy this. And so it's like, well, what, what characteristics can we have of our town that will stand out if a visitor comes or, you know, it's something that's nice. And so we have all these bells in the chief uh, church steeples, other places, uh, not all religious, you got city hall. Like a lot of fire stations have bells. And you start looking around, everybody's got them, but nobody rings them. And so we started this project where we're trying to get money to renovate all the bells in town. Uh, it used to be like on New Year's Eve, uh, everybody would ring the bell. That's where you get ringing in the new year. It comes from. And so everybody would go out there, ring the bell. And, and in Milwaukee, unfortunately, you go down here and you hear a lot of gunshots. You know, at, you know everybody thinks that's what you're supposed to do. And I'm thinking it'd be great if we could ever drown out the, you know, the gunshots with, with ringing the bell. And so we have this project we're trying to do. We're trying to get some money. We're trying to get a couple bells renovated. And um, from there, we would um, uh, you know, be able to you know, start this, this going. I, I just wanted to try to you know, bring it to people's forefronts that you know, we, we should have that. And every time, you know, every, bring them on every hour uh, around town. You can get this downtown. There's several that are starting to ring now. You got City Hall, you got some other ones. And if we can get people doing it, I, I think it, it'd be one characteristic our city could have. So that's what we're, we're trying to do. It's kind of infancy, but I think you know, once people start learning about it and going, it'll start growing. The right word to end on. Uh, so, in fact, we we've taken scalerators as they graduate into the the tower at City Hall to ring the bell, and we will all be right. doing that again this year. All right. Um, so, if you all wouldn't mind, please join me in thanking Russ Klish, President and CEO of. <laughs>